Father, winter is always an adventure, and we've staved off the snowy Sundays until today. Lord, we pray that um, across the distances we will be united in your spirit to hear from your word. Uh, Lord, may you be glorified in our midst, even as the, the surface area of our gathering is so spread out. Lord, keep those who have to travel um, today safe on the roads. Uh, Lord, um, protect uh, the backs of those who have to shovel and, and clear uh, Lord, we pray for the health of our congregation and those we love. There's a number of uh, health challenges still going on. Lord, most of, most of all, most important of all, may you be glorified in our midst as we look to your word and we spend a little bit of time um, just looking at John the Baptist and, and um, the role he played in introducing uh, the world to Jesus. And Lord, may, may your... Your word point us to Jesus. May we see him better and follow him better uh, today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 3. Last week we introduced John the Baptist. Um, And of course, Matthew's gospel does not go into the detail that the other gospels do um, especially Luke and John, he his his presentation of John the Baptist is is pretty um, stripped down. Um, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Luke gives us all this background information about John's parents and and the relationship to Jesus and and all of those things. Mark's gospel actually just opens with John, like just right out of the gate. Um, and in in John's gospel, in the fourth gospel, there's a there's a, a whole interaction as Jesus comes um, and, and, G, and John calls him the Lamb of God and, and John's disciples follow Jesus. In Matthew, we just have a very brief interaction in chapter 3. We started it last week about the word repent, um, how John's message is really look around, see what's wrong, change because the, the kingdom comes. All right? the, the kingdom arrives. The king is coming. And so in verse 3, then we have this statement, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, and this is in Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So we're just going to look at this passage because there's a lot in there um, setting up the situation. First, the first thing that happens here is, is Matthew's quote of Isaiah. Now Matthew will quote Isaiah more than any other book of the Hebrew Scriptures. He quotes Isaiah a lot looking to Jesus. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to get into it. But this particular line um, is quoted by all four of the Gospels about John. This, this particular passage. And it seems to have been, this was the consensus of the believers, the apostles and the early church, that this is who John was. John was this voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now, 
one of the one of the little pieces, and this isn't the message, but one of the little pieces about Matthew that we have to watch is of all the gospel writers, Matthew is most careful in the way he shows that Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God. He is not as 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 explicit as John's gospel is. John's gospel, he actually says the whole point of this gospel was so that you could understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Matthew is much more subtle. Um, he, he's, he has this um, sensibility about him. Um, and some commentators have said, well, you know, Matthew didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. Matthew didn't believe that, that Jesus was God the Son. Um, the fact that Matthew quotes this verse, it does not say, prepare the way of the Messiah. It says, prepare the way of the Lord. And in Isaiah, it is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So Matthew very subtly puts in, John the Baptist came before God arrived. So the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God, he's very subtle about that. He doesn't. He wants to make sure we, we think of it in a, in a broad sense. But he, he interjects into his things, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is uh, God taking on flesh. Now, um, in verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, comfortable and fashionable. Um, now, now this is this is an interesting. It's an interesting attire, um, and it actually links back to Second Kings chapter one and verse eight, um, where Elijah the prophet dresses in the same clothes. Now, lest you you be kind of sitting there going, okay, what does a garment of camel's hair look like? And if you if you grew up in church or ever had a children's Bible, it usually shows him dressed kind of like Conan the Barbarian, right? Like uh, he's got like this shaggy, you know, it looks like he's going to like, he's got like a wrestler's, um, a wrestler's uniform on, but it's just fuzzy. Um, this is actually relatively common, the idea of camel's hair. It can be woven. It's not like wool. It's a little bit different, but you can weave it into a fabric. Um, and so um, he, it's, it, he's not walking around, you know, like, like scantily clad. This is a full garment, but it, it's pulled together with this leather belt. And the point of this is to identify him with Elijah. Um, so when Matthew says this, he's saying, okay, John the Baptist and Elijah Look to Elijah, think about Elijah when you think about John the Baptist. Now, I always wondered why this was so important. So there's a prophecy in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, about Elijah coming before the Messiah, coming before the coming of the Lord. So there's that. Um, But in their society, in this culture, in the Jewish world of the day, it had become almost a cliché to say, Elijah comes before the Messiah. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. This is this great moment, right? So in the, the, the Talmud, which is the record of the Jewish, uh, the oral law of the Jews, and it comes after the time of, of Jesus, but um, it records this conversation about whether it is okay to drink wine on the Sabbath day. And the conversation about it... now. It, this is just give you a little context of how weird the the Talmud is. It starts with a conversation about how high you can jump on the Sabbath day. 
All right? And there's this argument about you can't jump more than 10 spans on a Sabbath day. So, so a span is the distance of your hand from, from here to here. So the idea was if you measured, you could only jump up or down 10 spans. Why that was such a big deal, I have no idea because I certainly can't jump anywhere close to 10 spans. Um, but it, it, and they, they, it goes on and on. I read it and it's just going on and on. Well, then he gets to the, the, he, the, the, the rabbi that's talking brings up Elijah. And he says basically his argument is, well, on the, when the Messiah comes, we should not drink wine during the week, we should only drink it on the Sabbath. Okay, so this is kind of the, the argument. He goes, however, Elijah has not come yesterday, therefore we can drink wine today. Now, just, all right, so the idea was Elijah would come before the Messiah, right? So since Elijah didn't come yesterday, we can drink today. And he goes over and over and over to this. So can we do it on Monday? He goes, well, Elijah didn't come on Sunday, therefore we can drink wine on Monday. And Elijah didn't come on Monday, so we can drink on Tuesday. And Elijah, didn't, and he goes through it. And it's all this big, long, elaborate argument and basically gets to the point of, as long as Elijah didn't show up yesterday, we can drink today. Now, personally, that sounds like an alcoholic. Like, I, I don't know why he has to go through all this jumping. But what it does is it shows us somewhat of the mindset of the Jews. The idea was Elijah would come before the Messiah. And so we are kind of like in a, in a holding pattern until Elijah shows up. So we have to just keep doing things the way we're doing it. Just, you know, kind of maintain the status quo. And then when Elijah comes, then we can change everything. Then we can start to um, kind of adapt how we're living in that kind of stuff. So when Matthew very clearly identifies John with Elijah, what he is saying is, okay, um, the Messiah is coming. Change is coming. And so John the Baptist becomes a transitional figure. He becomes a person who has his feet in both the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew Scriptures, and in what God is about to do in Jesus. He is he's spanning the distance. Um, and so uh, he is, uh, he's, got, uh, he's got his garment of camel hair and leather belt, as I said. Very comfortable, very fashionable. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I have always enjoyed the conversation about the locusts here because for some reason we have this obsession with trying to explain that it couldn't have actually been bugs. Like, like now, prior to this year, there was this big debate. Now, I don't know if you guys saw the news, like, in the last year, the big thing is we have to stop eating cows because they produce methane, and so the solution to that is to eat bugs. I don't I'm not how, sure how far I'm willing to put my environmental consciousness. I have to be honest. I, I kind of like cows. Um, I, I, uh, I, I like them medium, medium, well. Um, so uh, this is, he, the description here is that he's actually eating the bugs, the locusts. All right? there, there's, there's a lot of commentators that say, well, he's eating the, the seeds of the carob tree. 
Um, Carob is kind of a, like a substitute coffee if, or uh, 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 chocolate. It's got kind of a chocolatey taste to it. And so he's eating the seeds of the carob tree because those are called locusts. That's an interesting theory, but it's wrong. Um, he, the word here, the word here is locust. The Greek word is the word for the insect. He's eating the insect. Unless you think that we're talking about like grasshoppers. These are, these are large insects and there's a lot of protein in them and they're, it's still eaten today. It's considered a delicacy among the Bedouin in Palestine and Syria and, um, and, uh, and the Levant. It is, it, you still eat these and the way that you eat them is that you cover them in something sweet. Um, and you crunch away. So you get protein and carbs. It's a perfect diet. I'm desperate for somebody to come out with a lotus, locust and wild honey diet. Some Christian probably already has, like a keto alternative. Um, and uh, I just like, all we're going to do is eat that. Um, and then the, the term wild honey um, is honey that he gathers from the trees. Uh, because um, basically, if you wanted to domesticate bees, um, and you could do it. Um, I spent way too much time, by the way, reading about ancient beekeeping this week. Um, but uh, what would happen is a lot of the farmers, they would intentionally put something in their walls to attract the bees to form hives. And it was just kind of a secondary way of food production. You know, you just get this, you get the bees to produce it. Um, and uh, And so what John is doing is he's gathering from honeycombs that are scattered throughout the wilderness. In the, in the cool places of the wilderness, in um, kind of the nooks of the cracks of the rocks, or up in, ironically, the carob trees, um, the, the bees will settle and they will build hives and they will produce honey. Um, he could be describing fruit honey. I don't know if any of you have ever had, um, like, date honey. Uh, it's like... It's like if maple syrup came from the Middle East. That's the best way to describe it. It doesn't appeal to me. Um, but uh, those kind of things. But it seems like he's actually just eating honey. Why are these two things so important? All right, so his robes are tied to the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about eating locusts and wild honey. But these are... Um, these, are the foods, these are the foods of the people who live on the periphery of civilization outside of the cities, in the wilderness, living a subsistence living, this is what you eat when you don't belong to a group, when you don't belong to a, a, a sect or a denomination or a, a, a tribe or a family. Um, there's a lot of theories about John uh, that he was associated with uh, what's called the Essenes, which is a, a kind of an aesthetic, an ascetic cult, uh, um, sect of Judaism, um, or possibly was involved in the groups of the Dead Sea Scrolls, around the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's no no proof of this. It's just kind of this idea. Um, I read one commentary. The guy talked about how, um, I mean, he had this real elaborate story where uh, John's parents, because they were older, because you know from Luke, they're, they're older, they died and so then John was just given to a, a wilderness group of the Jews. And, but then he got disgruntled and he left and he was living in the wilderness by himself. And I mean, he had this whole, he goes on for like 50 pages about John's biography. And I'm like, wow, I'd really like to know where he got all this because this is all just made up. Um, it's just a, it's a wonderful story, but it has no basis in scripture. Um, what we do know is that John is living on the periphery. Uh, the fact that he baptizes in the Jordan River has no precedent in Jewish practices of this day. 
Now, baptism was actually relatively common. They, they, um, the, the Jews uh, following the book of Leviticus, they believed in a baptism of purification. But it was a very private practice. Um, when we were in Jerusalem, um, we, we were able to go to the ruins of an aristocratic house in Jerusalem, and it's underneath an office building. You like, we, our tour guide was bringing a seat. We like walked through this office building. We thought maybe we were going to buy some stocks or something. I don't know what was going on. Um, and then we went in an elevator down underneath the office building. There were the ruins of this, this house. And in the house, there are what, called, what are called the mikvot, or mikvah is singular. And they're giant um, bathtubs. They're, they're cut in the rock. And what you did it was you filled them from running water. They couldn't be filled from a cistern. had to be filled from uh, running water or rain. Um, and you filled that, that tub. And every time you had to be clean, ceremonially clean, um, you would... You would take off your regular clothes, put on a special clothes, go into the mikvah, you would immerse yourself, you would come out, you take the clothes off, you'd put your regular clothes on, you'd go do your thing. Um, the, the ultimate expression of this is the, the Masorites, who were a Jewish uh, scribe movement in the 800s AD. Um, every time they wrote the name of God, they had to go bathe. You read, you read some of the Psalms? Those guys were clean by the end of that day. I mean, because every time they would write it, they'd put their pen down, take off their clothes, go and immerse themselves, come back out, write the next word, then do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. Um, not a job for me. Um, in, the, in Qumran, down by the Dead Sea, there are, there are mikvah next to the dining hall because the, the, the sect of Jews that lived there believed that anything you touched before you ate, made you unclean to eat. So you had to bathe before you went into the dining hall. And then you had to bathe when you came out of the dining hall. You had to bathe before you went into the fields to harvest food. You had to bathe before you brought the food into the kitchen. There was all of this immerse, 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 immerse. Um, now, we live in a very humid place where this kind of thing sounds excessive. Um, the humidity in the Dead Sea, down by the Dead Sea, is about 3%. So you could literally immerse yourself, come up out of the water, and it's about 110 degrees um, in December. Um, it, and you, you could literally immerse yourself, and by the time you walked about you know, 500 yards, you'd be dry. It's a super, super dry environment. John doesn't baptize like they do. A mikvah had to be, you had to have the tub, you had to, the, had to be ritually pure, all this stuff. John is just at the Jordan River. He is outside of societal norms. He is operating entirely beyond the bounds of the priesthood and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're going to see in verse 7 that they come out trying to figure out what he's doing. Because what he's doing is so odd. Um, not only is he outside of the, the barriers, but he's outside of the rules of purity. Because when you immersed yourself in a mikvah, you did it yourself. The idea that someone else would immerse you, that, that didn't exist in the Jewish world. 
So here comes this weirdo, dressed in camel hair and a leather belt, eating locusts and honey, standing on the bank of the Jordan River, actually standing on the Jordanian side of the Jordan River. Uh, Bethany beyond Jordan is where he was baptizing. Um, He's standing on the other side of the Jordan River, calling people from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and everywhere else to come. And then he is telling them, I'm going to baptize you, but before you do, you have to confess your sins in verse 6. Now, the Hebrew word confess, um, homologizomai, it means to say the same thing. But that's not actually the word that appears here. The word that appears here is ex homologizomai, which means um, to say it aloud. To proclaim your sins aloud. Um, so we got an interesting situation. Imagine what is going on around John. He's in camel hair. He's got a leather belt. Everybody knows that he's identifying himself with Elijah. He, uh, he's marginalized. He's outside the barriers of normal Judaism. People are coming down to see him. He's standing in the water. And when you get in the water with him, before he puts you under the water, something that nobody else is doing, you have to loudly exclaim your sins. Now that had to have been a very interesting situation for some of these people. Because they came down thinking, oh, hey, John's a teacher, he's a teacher. Imagine being a, uh, a priest and you come down and you're going to be baptized by John and John says, all right, time to say out loud your sins for everybody to hear. Not the most attractional practice, not, not, not the easiest thing in the world and yet he is attracting a huge crowd. He draws the attention of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Eventually he will get the attention of the the Herodian king. What is going on here? Despite all of the superficial appearances of the world that John was outside of, there was a discontent with the answers that were being provided by the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Despite the fact that everything seemed to be going well, the, the, the temple was the you know, eighth wonder of the world, um, Judaism was more popular than it ever had been, uh, tourist money is flowing in, and yet there is this deep discontent in a world where the the answer to everyone's questions, when will Messiah come, are people arguing about, well, Elijah didn't come yesterday, so he must not have come today. These kind of weird answers. In In a world where everybody, things seem to be good, in reality, people were desperate to hear the oddball, the weirdo, the guy from the margins. One of our great misconceptions as Christians who are called to share the gospel to the world is that we have to make the gospel palatable and easy for people. That the message of God has to be sugar-coated 
and buried and compromised so that people will be all right with hearing it. And I just, I don't mean just the, the, the kind of shallow megachurch stuff. I don't mean that. Even, even when we address matters that, that are, are, are simple, we, we tend to sit there and go, well, we've got to kind of, let's, let's nuance it. Let's, let's bury it. Let's, let's try to make it relative. And yet God uses a complete weirdo to prepare the way for his son. And make no mistake, John the Baptist is a weirdo. In any society, he would stand out. Even yesterday, we made the mistake of going to Pheasant Lane Mall on a Saturday night. I always remember Pheasant Lane being odd, but it has become odder. It is like a strange, strange land. Uh, yes, it was. And the parking lot, some of the parking lots in Massachusetts. Um, uh, but that, that I, we're, and we're walking around and I'm going, I'm going, is it, is it odd that I think I'm the weirdo because I'm not like anybody else in this mall? Um, there was a lot of strangeness going on in this mall. Um, there's like eight manga anime shops in the mall. Ariel was super happy. Nicole and I literally had nothing to look at. We were walking around going, this store has lots of nothing. This mall has nothing. Ariel's like, ooh, anime. Um, John stands out from the world. He's odd, he's weird, and yet he taps into something that is deep and unspoken. In Second Temple Judaism, there is a discontent. There is a, there is a frustration with the way that the perfect world system is treating everything. And you know what's really interesting is I think that if you really take a look at our society, all of our affluence, all of our gifts, all of our stuff that we have, all of our, our politicians telling us, you know, everything's great and wonderful if we just behave this way. We, we talk about there is, this, there is this deep undercurrent of discontent with the way the world is, even among those who are okay with the agendas that we may not agree with who want things to be a certain way. There's just this, there's this roiling, there's something wrong. There's something missing. And, and they're, they're trying everything they can to fix it. I, I think nothing says more about this than our obsession about violence not happening in our culture, right? We obsess about violence, and yet violent video games being a multi-billion dollar industry. Do you not see the paradox that, that we are all about love and peace and kindness and yet the biggest selling movies in, in, in our society are ones where people are getting shot in the head over and over and over again? You see that there, there's something roiling under the surface. There's tensions in our world. Now we followers of Christ know the reason for that tension. Our world is full of sin and people need grace and they need Jesus. And maybe we're called to be a little bit weird because their world needs a path for the king to enter. Maybe we need to stand out a little bit. Maybe we need to be a little odd. Maybe our voices and our, and our arguments need to not conform with what the world says so that their discontent can be bridged to God's grace. He did something. Oh, by the way, we only have one sermon from John. And his introduction, 
and we'll talk about it next week, is to tell all the religious leaders that they are a brood of vipers. He starts with, I love his illustration by, by the way, just, and I'll, we'll talk about this next week, but his illustration, his sermon is, I kicked over the steel on the ground and a bunch of snakes went running and that's you. I've exposed the world, I've exposed what was in darkness to light and you're all scrambling and running. It's time for you to face the truth. It's time for you to face God. He's coming. Are you ready? What an interesting sermon he preaches. And we're going to talk about it next week. But if you're uncomfortable, if you're uncomfortable with being the Christian weirdo, settle in and embrace it. Be okay with being different, with standing for things that the world doesn't stand for. We don't need to be aggressive about it, but it's okay to be a Christian weirdo in a world that is defying God. It's okay to stand out from the religious leaders. It's okay to stand out from the voices that are being raised because there is a discontent and God is looking to use us to clear the way for Christ to enter the lives of those around us. Join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, help us to be a witness, to speak for you, to be the forerunners, to be the voices raised in the wilderness, to be the outliers and the marginalized that raise up the realities that are causing the chaos and the disunity and the confusion of our world. Help us to offer grace in the place of agenda and attack and bias and, and, and games to offer to those who are looking for the solution to what ails the world the truth of the gospel. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, by your spirit, before the throne of your Father. May we be your church. We pray this in Jesus' name.